Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast, featuring industry leaders and their perspectives on electrification, hosted by EV Ready Energy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the EV Ready Podcast. Thanks for joining today. And I am honored to have on the podcast, former ChargePoint CEO and current ChargePoint advisor, Pat Romano. Pat, thanks for joining. Chris, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you joining. When I was thinking about the type of people that I want to have on the podcast, there's probably like nobody that I've had more good conversations with where we kind of go back and forth a little bit. And I, I love I love your personality and kind of your approach to a lot of these difficult conversations and questions. So thanks for uh, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed I, I enjoyed all my conversations with you and still do it. Yeah, we're getting to do this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and I'm sure we're going to jump into a few conversations that we've had previously as well. So first question I had for you, you were ChargePoint CEO a few months ago, and everybody's curious what you're doing today. So tell us a little bit about your your current situation. How are you spending your time? Well, like I said in the introduction, you know, ChargePoint, I'm trying to work on things with the team there. And so I have a set of initiatives that the team there has got me involved in. So that's that's a big part of it. And obviously, you know, I was, I was in ChargePoint 13 years, uh, almost years. February, but first week February, we my 13th anniversary, so I'm a little shy at 13 years. And so, you know, I mean, my affinity for that place will be unwavering forever. And it's not only the place, but the people. So whatever they need me to do, I'm going to do. And what, whatever they want me to stay out, I'll stay out because I'm not going to wear else. <laughs> because I respect and love the team there. And so that's one thing. Um, what I'm also trying to do, and you know me quite well, I think your audience knows me probably very well personally at all, but I am a hopeless engineer. I'm just, I'm just an engineer at everything. I don't know all my family or friends put up with me. I'm glad I have them. And so I am getting very organized about how I think about how I spend my time in the future. And I am coming to the conclusion that, you know, I'm not, not on with operating roles in companies. So I'm going to pursue that carefully, right? I want to pick well. Much like when I sold my previous company and took the Jediable charge point, I made a decision then that's even more, I think, important now. I don't want to work in an endeavor that is not impactful beyond the financial return to investors of the company. I just, life's too short to have as big an impact as possible. Now, now I don't want to sound tone deaf. Not everyone gets up. I have got luxury because I've had a little, bit of, a little bit of success, so I've got a little bit of flexibility with respect to how I pick that. I know a lot of people don't get the luxury of being able to just flip them and say, well, I'm going to get you. I'm going to narrow the subset of companies that are going to have large impacts because, you know, people have to pay paid bills. I know as a majority of my career, my kids look little, I would have had to think about all that stuff. So after recognizing that, though I, I'm, a, I'm a very fortunate individual and have the luxury to basically qualify and opportunities by that, I'll tell you the genre of things I'm looking at or thinking about looking at. And um, and, I, and, and because I'm a hopeless engineer, I have the bucket of this could be my day job. I could make it a day job. And I don't want this to necessarily be my day job, but I want to be involved in it somehow. Advisory, friendly with the company or whatever, I don't know, whatever. Some kind of role where I'm, I, I, I got a finger in it somehow. And over here, a list of things like, hey, these things can be my day job. So in no particular order, I'll probably not get everything that's on the list, but let's, let's hit the elephant that's in the room. Let's say charging technology companies. 
It's good to hear you didn't trade in your charge point orange bike. I did no. In fact, as a going away present, the, the team there is just I really, really, really miss every single one of them. On I still see them and talk to them, but I just miss the daily interaction. So here's how nice that team is. Okay. They bought me a custom designed race kit. You know, the 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 outfit that you wear when you're in a triathlon. Yeah. That is Charge Point branded to match the bike that I got painted when I bought it with a Charge Point paint job because, you know, they know what I think of the company and people there. And that's how that just says like a lot about the humans that, that are at Charge Point. They're really wonderful. I've always said, like, obviously I was there before, like the number one thing at Charge Point and it is so real is like the people at Charge Point. That's the thing that I miss. And I hear other people come and go, but that's that that's the one. Yeah. So they yeah, it's a little I don't, I don't know what we did right. I'd love to be able to bot, but I can't tell you what the formula is. But hard luck, part some kind of thing that we did. We have some awesome human beings, like people that if I got into a situation personally where I needed mental support or you know just a, a shoulder to lean on or whatever, I know I can. I mean, I know I can count on a lot of people, and they can count on each other. Thanks. So charging companies, I don't want to make my data day job and I would never do anything remotely competitive to charge point only because I got my baby there, right? And I got more importantly, I got a set of people that I, you know, love and respect so much. I, I I'm I'm doing everything I can to make that entity, that that wonderful place as successful as possible. Complementary things to charge point in the charging space, I probably wouldn't do it's not on my like day job priority list, but because I've been in charging for 13 years. But I, I stay involved as a advisor, board member, whatever. Because those opportunities popped up, and I'm evaluating those things. But they have to be complementary charge point. They can't be competitive. I'm very interested in nuclear as part of the solution for for the energy transition. I think renewables are only going to get us so far. If you do the math on how much storage you would need to make renewables solely the solution for decarbonization of our grid, you're not going to get there fast enough. And if you look at not only Fission, which is incredibly advanced now relative to all the things that conjure all the bad things about nuclear, it's quite useful. And more importantly, there's a lot of really great advancements in fusion. Uh, and we've been talking to some folks in that industry. It's really amazing. And, you know, it's been one of those things where people, I think, have said, ah, you know, it's been 15 years away for the last 50 years. Well, you know, eventually you crack the last problem and it happens and they're getting closer and closer. Especially a lot of the great work that's being done now on, on containing of baguettes. And, and so I'd like to be involved in somehow in that, in that, um, in that industry. So I think it's, I think it's huge. And then I've got a soft spot for anything electric with respect to aviation. I'm an advisor to let me take capital over large industries. Mike Berlin's has a, uh, has a fund specifically, you know, looking at, at that stuff. And so I'm, I, uh, that could be a day job was aviation or drones, right? Either one. I have a close friend who's got a drone company. Faxi and I started a few water together, my last company and, uh, working with him on his drone company right now, which is fascinating. It's just, uh, and he is the best engineer that I've met. And, uh, it's a pleasure to work. So there's stuff there. I think there's going to be a lot in the energy space that's applying. So. If you look at some of the problems with it, that AI is going to generate, your brain, your brain consumes, this is aside, your brain consumes about, I think it's about 20% of your calories. It's in there. It's, 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 it's a thought. 
why it's relevant is AI is going to consume a lot of power because think about what the human version that that's trying to emulate is disproportionately consuming in terms of the energy necessary to keep you alive. If we're trying to emulate even a portion of that relative to what we're doing now in computing, it's going to just dwarf it. And the power consumption and just how do we rethink how do we literally power the data side is going to be, uh, it, there's going to be a lot of tech and a lot of business models and a lot of creativity applied to that. Um, so that's interesting to me. And then space and most things, and, and you know, I, look, I, I'm not, I'm not sure, you know, trying to go to Mars or anything like that. I mean, I think, you know, Elon's got the financial scale and the breath to, to be able to take shot at that. And thank God uh, that someone's, you know, kind of maniacally focused on kind of pushing the envelope because what's happening is all the technology that's kind of needed to put that together is bashing a lot of other things. But there's a lot of things in communication, in space tech, in there's just so much that's going on to support different applications um, that can be space-based. That, that's interesting. It's unlikely to be a day job for me, but but could easily be, be an advisory job. I don't know, it could be a day job. It depends on the skill set a little lot for that. Well, well, just to stay in the AI piece for a second, how is AI going to affect the automotive industry? Because the way I kind of like, I don't know, I'm not an engineer. I don't understand AI, but I think like, you know, Tesla's approach, they're a car company right now. Eventually, they're going to be an AI company. And I'd, I'd love to hear how you think that's going to evolve. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the biggest impact that AI is going to, it's going to have a lot of impact, but the, the obvious impact that it's going to have is an autonomous joint, right? And by the way, on the aviation side, there's an autonomous component. It's actually easier. Because obstacle-wise, when you're in the air, there's just less obstacles and, and there's less density of you. So if you think about the autonomous light problem, aside from policy conservatism associated with anything that's in the air, which should be, I'm criticizing that, it's a much easier problem. So it's likely to break first in vertical applications like flint or constrained applications, construction, farming, things like that you've seen at the times. But why, but, and, and so I think the breakthrough uh, in some people's thinking associated with autonomous drive, this is that autonomous drive isn't about teaching an AI how to drive. That's a relatively simple thing. The hard thing about driving is not the driver. The hard thing about driving is the random set of circumstances that can impose themselves, the itself, in front of a vehicle. And the vehicle has to be able to interpret it. I'll give you an example. When you pull up to a, a crosswalk, you're approaching a crosswalk and you're driving. There's, there's, there's no stop sign. Okay. So you're approaching your crosswalk and you see a person that's distracted looking at their phone step off the curb. You have a mental model because of your entire life leading up to the point where you got your driver's license. You have a mental model of a person because you are. And you're like, that person is looking at their phone and it's likely distracted. So you have a mental model for the behavioral characteristics. Someone who maybe has been drinking too much, maybe is physically impaired, maybe is not paying attention. You see kids playing soccer in the front yard with no fence in the front yard and they kick a ball that you know missed the last kid and it's going to roll in front of your car. You anticipate that because of the knowledge in your brain about light and, and, and your circumstances, not about, I know how to make an, a, you know, an unprotected left turn safely uh, by reading stop signs and traffic lights. That ain't the hard part. The hard part is all other stuff, animals, construction, random 
things going on in proximity of vehicle that could impede it, that it has to anticipate. That's what drives the AI problem. So I think the shift in why, frankly, Tesla was able to get the their humanoid robot up the curve to where it is, relatively fast, by the way, is when you say, hey, wait a minute here, instead of creating a, an AI that knows how to drive, why just create an AI and then teach it how to drive, right? The driving part is not the hard part. It's like, how long does it take a 16-year-old to learn how to pilot a vehicle? Not very long. Why? Because they circumstantially understand everything else around it. So that's, I think, going to be the big change that's going to advance the automotive field is the larger AI ecosystem is going to learn how to get bigger and bigger AIs that understand more and more human context and then teaching those AIs, extending those AIs to learn how to drive a vehicle. That's a small increment because they already know everything else. And then they get a, the AI can basically expand its, its knowledge incrementally just to understand the piloting dynamics of the vehicle. So I think that's going to be, because there's a big system. I, I love the arguments about, do I need LiDAR? Do I need this? Do I need that? Do I need, yeah. Here's the existence proof. It's very simple. You only need a single camera to drive a car. Your eyeballs aren't two cameras. Your eyeballs are a binocular camera because you get depth from stereopsis. You get depth perception because you have two eyes that have slightly off view, off angle view of the same thing. So you are interpreting. It's not like you're like a lizard where you could flip one eye to the left and one eye to the right. You can't make them two cameras. You can't, you can't do that. You have one camera. Your camera's mounted on a swivel, your neck. You don't have 360 degree ability to rotate your neck. I don't know what your field is, but it, it, you know, if it's 180, you're, you know, you're, you got pretty good net, net flexibility. So you can see that hemisphere in front of you, right? You got, you're limited by your eyes resolution and your ability to deal with darkness. So you have all those limits, right? That are there. And then you, you have a limited blue rate or swivel rate on your head. You can only turn from the left to the right so fast because the musculature and the construction of the human body is what it is. And then what you have, so you can see behind you, is you have three mirrors. It's two mirrors equivalent of having dynamic cameras that are pointed kind of to the side and behind to give you the other hemisphere that your neck can't turn to see that easily, unless you literally reposition yourself in your seat. So what it says, it is one AI, your brain, and one camera on a swivel that has about 180 degrees worth of field of view that can't move instantly from one view to the next, but has their finite rate which you can scan, and the ability using mirrors to see behind you. So you could argue that maybe you replace the mirrors with some additional cameras, but they're kind of natural placements for each other. That's all it takes to drive a vehicle about as well as human. Here's the challenge. Augmenting the camera with a lot of sensors is basically putting a safety net around an AI that isn't fulsome enough to be able to handle the circumstances. That's the only reason we have all these other things. Now, we could use these other things to be then impediment. That would be great. So maybe we do. Maybe they have some radar or some LIDAR. And the reason is, hey, you know, they fought to the ground, can't see out your windshield, would normally pull over and not go anywhere. Well, maybe the car could still drive in those circumstances. Awesome. That's wonderful. Why don't we just get back to how little human could drive a car? That'd be a great starting point, and then we can go further. So that's primary how it's going to affect the auto industry. Here's the secondary thing. So I was out uh, with my friend and had his drone company uh, yesterday. They were working on that 
prototype, really breakthrough, some really breakthrough cool stuff they used to do. So we were having a conversation about aerodynamic design. And I said, you know, there's a lot of degrees of freedom. There's a lot of factors when you design a drone or car. Sounds like a machine learning problem. You could just basically say, hey, look, I could do a whole bunch of calculations and experiments that are point experiments based on a theory that I come up with by change index and why it happens. Or I could just let the machine learning algorithm try all this stuff in a simulation environment kind of arbitrarily and see what the hell it comes out with. So now imagine active suspensions, aerodynamic design for the exterior of the car so it still looks nice and doesn't look like a chin dryer, right? Because you know, let's go get the wing. Uh, and that's not very exciting. Positioning of the audio in the car and improvements in the audio environment and the entertainment aspects to the vehicle, all that sort of stuff. Driving assistance so you don't have to take your eyes. You don't need, make the text to speech really so bulletproof that it actually works. So you can ask it really open ended. You, you can have an open-ended, more open-ended kind of natural conversation with the AI that's that's powering the vehicle, and it can decide things. So you can say, hey, look, you know, kids are screaming in the back, and you find, like, you know what they usually like, you know, for food, you know, what, what are my options? Imagine being able to say that instead of having to say, okay, let's see, I'm in Florida, so there aren't any In-N-Out burgers in Florida, so I got to look forward to it. Instead of having to do that, you just basically say, the kids are screaming in the back, what, what would they like? I, I, I got to stop the truck going vehicle anyway. What would they like? And imagine it comes back saying, uh, and by the way, the other thing that, that is a little pet peeve of mine, could you please find a place that's in the direction of my destination? My nav system knows where the hell I'm going. Could you stop suggesting restaurants that are four miles behind me? Because I don't want to back up. I mean, just this whole thing. That's where the auto tech is going to get affected by an AI. And that stuff doesn't require a million regulatory things to happen. So while we may get to the ability to drive autonomously before the powers that be really enable it because they don't trust it yet, we will get to an environment in vehicles where we can have open-ended conversations. And it's going to not just be in vehicle, it's going to be everywhere. It's going to radically change how often you actually need a screening. It's going to be really mind-boggling, but I think we're going to actually have personal assistants that are effective. And by the way, my parents are, you know, they're so awesomely mobile and stuff. They're 80, well, soon to be 81 and 86. So they didn't grow up with tech. Yeah, I think, I think the tech community has done such a crappy job making stuff for people that didn't grow up with tech. I mean, come on, they, 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 they just make it way too hard. Way too hard on folks. Uh, I'm an engineer by trade, so I can usually, you know, they can hand me their thought. I can be like, oh, you didn't know about their whatever feature that if you go into set things and this and did it and be turning this on. And they'd be like, okay, not for nothing, but you know, we probably could have found that if we like invested four hours, but we don't want to invest four hours in that. We'd rather go see our friends. Well, imagine when AI enables that to not have to. So the second piece of AI that, that isn't being focused right now, everybody's focused on the autonomous thing. You're, to your point about regulators, it's going to take longer than the technology. We'll probably do a little bit sooner. Who is doing the version of AI that you're speaking about that's more tied to the experience? It's more tied to the user experience in the vehicle? Yeah. I think every car company out there to some degree is trying to figure out how they apply AI exactly in that way. How do we create a digital assistant extension? And the battle is the same battle that they've been fighting, frankly, for um, a long time. Car companies will either become a docking station or or they will become a platform that they add value on. I went through exactly the same thing 
ecosystem wise in my last we were in the broadband space. So now imagine your broadband carrier, you know, Comcast and phone company, whoever's giving you broadband. The conversation I would always have with the executives there is you better be swimming upstream on the content side pretty quickly. It's voice video and data you've already got. You got to lay up on the voice side if you're a, if you're a wire, if you have a wireless carrier, you know, component to your business. So people are going to be using cell phones, but man, if all you are is cutting, that's not a good thing. Well, a few cable companies have a little toe in the content war, but not many in the legacy kind of more telephony oriented companies. They really weren't successful on establishing that. So they get commoditized. They get commoditized completely. And there's complete interchangeability there. It's only price. And so uh, over time, because reliability and coverage catch up, right? They all catch up. And then you get, you know, the buyer, the where basically can only differentiate on price. It takes a while to think so. This would be my question from that then. Um, so I always tell people, like, if you look at Apple, right? Like, Apple, if you ask someone in Gen Z right now, what phone are you going to get? They know what phone they're going to get. Nine, I think it's nine out of 10 Gen Z have an iPhone today. It was 87%. I think now it's 90% today. In the United States. In the United States, yeah. When a phone's 1200 bucks, that's not true in most of the universe. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, look, I, look at what I'm carrying, right? I got one of them, right? I, I love look, it can innovate a little faster for me, but I mean, I, you know, I'd like the next one to do a lot more than this one. I bought this one because it's USB-C and it like enabled me to throw out half my cords, but it's solid. I mean, reliable. It's got great features. Uh, works with the Apple ecosystem really well. I'm not knocking Apple. I'm just think there's you know there's some things you could do. It's expensive. You bring up a good point though. People in the U.S. buy or Gen Z buys uh, an iPhone because of iMessage. In Europe, they do WhatsApp. In, in Asia, I actually don't know the name of it, but I know it's, I, I think it, maybe it's Facebook, but it's another tech. WeChat in China. WeChat in China. Yeah. Yeah. So my comment to that is like, tied to the automotive space, it's always been like, what's the make and model? What's the fit and the finish? It's been like a different experience. And from my perspective, it's all going to be about what's the content and the user experience inside the cars was going to drive vehicle sales in the future. Do you agree, disagree? Agreed. Yeah, agreed. And so here's the here's the thing. Yeah, and you've seen you've seen seen car companies making announcements to those back. So part of it is your customer base, your drivers that want your car, say, Man, my phone's with I don't think they're thinking about it just deliberately, but I think it's what's subconsciously you're having it. They're like, Well, my phone is with me hundred percent of the time. I'm in my car exactly four percent of the time or four percent last. So I'm not gonna have a hundred percent uh, platform driving my decisions in a 4% platform. So please give me car player and Android Auto. So all of my things that I've already curated on my phone show up in my vehicle and I don't have to, I don't have to maintain two blocks of the bar. I mean, it's a pr- look at I me, mean, it's legit. What some car companies are saying is, yeah, I know where I'm going there. Um, electric drive, by the way, dirty little secret of the electric drive. And I said this while our CEO of Charge Coin used to say it, it was, it's driven the differentiation of the, the away from drivetrain. Anyone can make a brick go zero to 60 in two seconds with an electric motor and a battery. So noble art is this, oh my God, look at this acceleration. So it may be a little bit of handling and driving dynamic, sure, but I mean, that's in one science too. And using active suspensions and electric motors, you can actually do a lot of really cool settings in software. No cost structure of that software. So you're going to have a roller skate. It's going to come out. It's brighter the base platform of the vehicle. Then you've got a chassis, which is only with the ergonomics of the human. You're going back to coach builders and the horse. <laughs> All right. Horse is the roller skate. 
and the coach builder is the thing you sit in that has you know, the accoutrements that you like. You go back to that. So you won't need as many car companies as you have on the planet right now in the, in the future. That's just going to go whoosh. It's got to get smaller. That universe has got to get smaller. And then the coach component of that has to differentiate in that in-cabin experience. And if that in-cabin experience is seeded intentionally because that's what the that's the 100% use case, I, I call it the 100% of the time. If that force is so strong that you can't overcome it, the auto industry commoditizes over one year. It commoditizes. It, and it has a fraction of the players. And some of them may not be American anymore, right? Because you've got the Chinese that you now have to contend with and never have to contend with. So unless we continue to erect artificial barriers, you're going to have to contend with the manufacturing machine that is China pumping out some very cost-effective stuff. It's pretty nice. So now that you've got to get the end cabin right. It seems like China's out of the game right now. I've seen a lot of the, the the vehicles that they're making at lower price points that that look great. And and my immediate reaction is, why aren't they entering the American market? But before you answer that question, because I know you're going to get to it in a second, anyways, related to you're talking about consolidation in the automotive industry. So the Nax connector, obviously, the announcement happened in April. Ford made the announcement. General Motors followed. Everybody else is following after this. From my perspective, to me, it feels like something bigger is going on because I'm thinking, all right, why would Tesla give up their biggest competitive advantage in selling um, cars and their fast charging network? And why would all the car companies be willing to give up their data? The only thing I can I can think of is consolidation in some way. Well, they're acting up the data. My assumption was that they would be getting data tied to when someone's like plugging into the Tesla network. Yeah, look at that data. That's look at that. They're getting data tied to tied to the batteries that they're using, and I'm guessing making the model. No, there's no no battery information that comes over that connected with the auto only and doesn't listen. Got it. Got it. Okay, so that's not a factor you're saying. Not a factor because the battery management system on the vehicle tells the charger what to do, not the reverse. Okay. And the way you see that is using a standard protocol. So it doesn't say, here's all the characteristics to my battery. What the car says is, hold my beer, Mr. Charger. Here's what I want you to do. Go to this pack voltage. Okay, now you're at that voltage. Okay, let's connect. Boom. Okay. This is the amperage I want. And then it ramps the amperage up. Stop. I don't want it anywhere after that, please. Why did Tesla make that decision? Why did the auto manufacturers? Was it just about the the experience of the driver? I have my theories, and I think they're, they're based in a pretty logical decomposition. But I'll, I'll start with some humor, as you know, Rose, I love to talk humor. Because it all just, there is some truth, right? So what I've told people, you read articles and stuff, and it's like, oh, George Point, it's the current, and they think, it's like, like, we put whatever connector on our children that are on the goddamn cars. It's the tail wagging the dog. And we're tail in that one context. We're not dog. We can't drive the auto industry to a connector type. So first of all, I'm like, okay, really, guys? That's a reporter that's got you know, I don't know, no research or no real understanding of charging. Uh, I can say that now that I work for charge point. No, I didn't say that way to the reporters back then, but that's what I think. Good timing for the podcast. Uh, it's really good to report it. And, and so what I'm out to do, what I said to people when I used to work for charge point is I've said, this is a travesty. You're a big fan of a lot of regulation, but regulation for the good of mankind is kind of necessary. And in Europe, they say, uh, sorry, car companies, you're all going to decide on one thing. And we should have done that a long time ago. So now we need a lot of divergence. There's really only, everyone says, oh, there's so many connectors and so many standards. That's another thing. I'm like, please stop asking that question before it really is it. In Europe, you got the AC connector, the Type 2 connector, and then you have CCS2, which includes as a subset that AC connector, because that's, you know, where the big communication happens. You got two big DC pits. So in Europe, 
you've got one AC connector and one DC connector. And what they're one's a subset of the other, so it doesn't look like two connectors on the car. It looks like one connector on the car. In the US, if they had settled on one connector side, you would have been exactly the same thing. Max, not max. It's a piece of plastic. It's a sheet and some pins. Now, is one small? Yeah. Why? Because in the early days of charging, the powers of being with respect to connectors and other things did not have the uh, ability. Here's the funny thing about the whole Max thing. We should have reconciled this a long time ago. I really don't care what the connector is. And it's it's only smaller because it multiplexes AC and DC over the same pins. That's probably the right thing to do for connector sets, okay? For long-term benefit of, you know, not being as unwieldy. But the bottom line is you couldn't do that and get its safety certification in the early days of the industry. It wasn't it wasn't something that was fully enabled. Now it is, okay? Lumsley, because of the existence of that connector type and people get comfortable with software being a safety mechanism. So a long time ago, we should have made a decision as an industry, but we didn't. So the humor is what I always tell reporters because I can't be this punchy when I'm, I'm, you know, dealing dealing with a reporter. Is I wanted to make a goddamn T-shirt when the next announcement came out that had a picture of a Max connector and a picture of a CCS one connector, saying no one really cares. Just pick one because it's too big a pain in the ass to have two. Okay. Please just pick one. So we did it. We picked one. Now the problem is we got none of the other stuff out there where we have to have a billion different kinds of solutions. So you don't have to put a hydra's worth of tables on a chargers and then you have to deal with creative things, adapters and stuff like that to be able to make it all work in the transition period until we settle on that. Now, reasons for it. Funding. You can't get heavy funding unless you can charge every car and also a lot of other grant programs. So you can't get the funding to subsidize the expansion of, of charging without having the ability to charge every car. So that's driving number one. Okay. Number two, and this is a theory of mine, and I'm theorized, is number two is if your long-term goal is that your cars will drive reliably autonomously in a short period of time, a rubber taxi business is what we transform their company into, or a big piece of it. And maybe in the interim stages, it's a way to effectively let your car gig when you're not using it. So you own the vehicle and you can sign it to a robo taxi platform when you're not using it. And then it's your car and you drive yourself and drive itself autonomously, whatever, when you're not using it. So now you're funding the CapEx for the startup of a global autonomous network. Well, it's really important to basically have control of the charger because now they're autonomous, right? And now they're being used a lot. You don't have to use a fast charger much if you're a consumer because you don't go outside the battery range that often and you're you know popping up around kind of turning a mile range right? it's fine for a vehicle forever because you put the battery in the nice you put the money in the nicer seats are a little price going at five six on a battery that's just crazy town unless you want to reserve some for towing city or something so when we get to about 300 real mile and we're only owning a car and using it four percent of the time and go on the Lake Tahoe or wherever you'd like to go ski or go to the beach or ski or or whatever, five, six times a year. Well, suddenly you don't access that fast charge network that often. You're accessing your fuel where you sleep and where you work and maybe a little bit around town. Incidentally, by the way, it's not all I'm needing that. Uh, the total fuel that's going into your vehicle, you earn about 2,500 kilowatt hours a year at three miles per kilowatt hour. And so the total cost at 12 cents a kilowatt hour, which is the national 
average, it's cheaper overnight in a lot of places in the United States now is a little over 500 bucks. So the entire fuel load for your vehicle is in the auto. Okay. So now the fraction that you're going to get for a long haul fuel ain't a big fraction. Plus it's a robo taxi fuel. Then it's using it all the time. So if you think your cars are going to become a robo taxi fleet, then you best have a leg in the charging network and the, the greater charging experience. Also, if you meant energy and are hoping that regulatory wise, you're going to have VPPs out there that ultimately can be broadly deployed in the US right now. Regulatory pockets, you can't pervasive it in the United States where you can have your house be part of a, a virtual power plant. But let's say eventually you can. This is nice to have a ready-made out. And now you got ready-made uptake for the energy, right? You can match supply and demand. You can do a whole lot of things. So that's why I do think it's good for everybody, right? To basically be on one connector because it enables the expansion of charging, which I think happens to be a line of the question you started with Tesla specifically, with Tesla's long-term goal of basically having a robo-taxi fleet and, and a, a play in energy that is very much oriented. They have they have grid scale stuff, but but uh, very much oriented around storage and, and solar. And so now if you're organizing VPPs and you have ready-made offtake, you get a lot of economic irons in the fire, so you can kind of figure it all out. But for someone to actually make money purely on retailing energy at fast chargers for the general passenger car market, you're starting with 10 to 15% of the fuel. So 10 to 15% of 4,500 kilowatt hours is all you're going to dispense in that scenario. And so there, where um, where you'd probably go with questions anyway, is why would anyone put one in? Then why? No one makes money on retailing gas. It's like a grocery store. It's worse, actually. What they do do is they make money on everything else and the, the cross subsidies matter. Well, it turns out that it takes a little bit longer to charge your vehicle. And even if the battery could take it, the infrastructure, the utility and grid scale infrastructure necessary is, is, is probably overwhelming for a very, very long time at, at any volume of sites. So you're going to, and you, you don't use it that often. So, and you're going to want to stretch your legs and do something. So once it takes more than five minutes, let it take 20, it doesn't really matter and then go buy something. So a lot of the 20 to 30 minute retail economy components that are at businesses that are out there that can sell you stuff when you shop, it's largely food services, but you can think of anything that takes 20 to 30 minutes. The the assumption, the mind jarring examples that I use, I don't know if these are viable, but you know, you can easily play golf and you could hit a bucket of golf balls pretty easily uh, in 20 to 30 minutes. So, you know, you can imagine you know, a driving range having EV charging, you know, I don't know how viable that'll be, but you could imagine that. Um, you could imagine any general with spot services available, grocery stores that are on routes to where people are driving to camp, ski, rental, you know, you know, you know, shop for the groceries for the week uh, in 20, 30 minutes while you're loading up the battery to give you enough mileage to get to your destination. These are all applications that people think that it's going to be a convenience store selling you bottle water and slim gyms. It's not. It's way beyond that because you're there longer. And now I actually think there's, there's this weird flip. People are like trying to charge in the rover state penalties at your fast charger, like the second your fast charger session ends, which it's encouraging me to stay in the car. That's nuts. I shouldn't encourage you to stay in the car at all. I should encourage you to get out of the car. And if you want to spend 40 in the little mini mart or the mini mall, right? And then money, awesome. Because the amount of money I'm going to make on you on the extra 20 minutes is going to be a hell of a lot more than if you spent an extra 20 minutes sucking power out of the charger at effectively zero or smart. So this all set 
in two places. It settles potentially in businesses that have other reasons to put, and then we're only looking at the fast charger segment now, which we got our two because of the next thing, only looking at putting fast chargers in because they want to sell you power, but they have other things they can connect it to, Robotex and fleets, um, VPBs, what happened. So there's that genre. And then there's this genre of, I'm not something to sell you, and you're going to be here 20 to 30 minutes. Man, you're the customer I want. And so I don't really care about, you know, the profit off the power. It's nice and can't lose money, but if it doesn't make any money, it doesn't matter because I'm going to fleece you for very high gross margin, coffee, food, retail items, whatever, in the, in the, in the store test because you're captive for 20 minutes and that's all I need. And that's where I think it lands on the faster side, but most of the fuel, most of the fuel for you and I, when it's not autonomous, which is going to take, when it's not autonomous, it's not going to come in there. So I want to, I want to go back to where you're talking about the VPPs and for most people that are listening and don't know what that means, virtual power plants. And I want to take it back to charging a little bit. So B2G, it has felt like an overhyped component of the industry for several years now, and it doesn't feel like it's happening anytime soon. Like what's the trajectory there? So you know, I just say what I think and, and what I think is typically the result of me not being glib, I usually look at the math behind stuff. So here's the math on B to G that I, it's kind of a hybrid of a qualitative and a quantitative. So for most charging, your car is dormant 96%. So it, whether it's both in while you're sleeping or you plug it in at work occasionally, or you plug it in when you're, you know, the shopping mall or grocery store, slowing down or speeding up the rate of charging without sucking energy out of the back. So if I slow down the rate of charging, it looks like I'm feeding it something. Okay. So if I have a charging session, that's not started at peak rate, but that started at say somewhere between 60 and 80% at peak rate. Cause remember I had plenty of time overnight. I, had, I usually don't have an empty battery when I show up at the shopping mall and watch and it to be full and it's not a built wall anymore. No one that people lose that connectivity. It's just like the phone. You plug it in when you can. You're Uber, you ask the guy to plug the little cable, you plug your phone in. Maybe you have 10% battery, you get out of the Uber, you got 30% battery. Did you care? Did you say drive around the block a little bit more so I can get another 15%? You, you unplug the cable and then you go. And then immediately the Uber to come home, you plug it in a little bit more. That's what happens with an electric vehicle. It's all RBD. So data today is best solved. The benefits, the proposed benefits of EDG are. On METs, easily achieved by just varying the charge rate for long duration, not for the fast charge when you're going to the beach. Don't. And by the way, everyone says, no, we need to throttle that to the greater. No, don't throttle that. You can put a bolt of lightning in the car, put a bolt of lightning in the car, right? Do not try to throttle that. That is misguided. Misguided. People don't want to wait. You want to throw cold water on the EV growth curve, have it be unreliable when they're driving down their batteries. That's a nightmare. So, Anything that looks like fast charge for long-haul driving on long-haul corridors, no energy management, it, boom, as much energy as your car will take, or if I have limitations on the site, as much the fraction of energy, the peak fraction of energy I can give you out of this set. That's what it needs to be, as fast as it can go practically, okay? Now, if when you're not, when you're in long-duration settings, I could just speed up and slow down the charging session and have 90% of the great benefit without having the complexity of grid type disconnects and things like that for the charging infrastructure, because I can't kill a repair tech. So when I feed in from my solar array on my route, when I feed in, right? And by the way, that's why I'm losing power is I'm going through my final inspection and my solar battery on my, on my, on my route. 
I had a gateway that was put on the side of my house that basically disconnects me from the grid when the grid goes down. So my solar battery isn't feeding into the grid when the repair guy is out there on a pole trying to fix something. Don't put on all that complexity for charging, for charging. So just use charge session management and don't turn it off 20%. That's it. Start at 80%, go up to 100, down to 60, then enough. You'll get tons of great benefit from that. So now, where does V2G really work? Vito. And by the way, Vito, oh, my car is going to be my backup for my house. Okay, let's take all our personal situations. Unless we're, unless we have a fleet of vehicles. I'm going to fleet of vehicles. I don't want to, I don't want a car get two cars. Look at me, look at my wife, my parents, by the way, because they stay here a lot, all that sort of shit. But I don't have a car that's guaranteed to be here. So it can't be my soul. It can automate. But let's say everyone's, the, the two cars are out and there's someone home and the power goes out. Let me let me change the application on you. Instead of speaking of it residentially, how about commercially? Where five years from now, 40, you know, across the United States, I know it already exists in California to some extent, 40% of, I'm going to give you a specific example, 40% of cars at a high school are electric. And, and employees of the school have an opportunity to, if the technology exists, plug into the school. What does that look like? You're, you're looking at rarefied circumstances where I have to put in a lot of infrastructure to get benefit. And if I sped up or slow down, the charging, here's, here's a different way to construct it that's much simpler. If your load control integrated with a utility or a grid operator, from a software perspective, which charge point is in cases where that's being played with by the facilities and still mass scale of one minute of anywhere it should be. Let's say you load control in the grid. And what's offered to the school is I'm going to reduce the cost of energy going to the vehicles. We're going to have a separately metered service. So we're going to put all of your EV chargers on a separate meter. You're going to get a separate bill for it. It's going to be a separate rate structure. And if you let us manage it, that rate structure is going to be ridiculous and cheap to the point where you can get the power to teachers. So instead of the teachers that are parked there in the staff, getting a dynamic check where they don't know they're going to get a check, right? What the school system says is for all the teachers that have electric vehicles, your fuel's free or your fuel's three cents a kilowatt hour. Way cheaper than you get at home, right? They can even charge for it, right? And so now what happens is it's guaranteed and it matches the rate structure that I get from the utility. There's no complexity there. It's far less complex. You don't really need the, I want to be powering. You really need to be able to use cars as a grid resource. There's, there's examples of where you can have time aligned, where vehicles are time aligned to where there's extra, there's a need for energy. And that peak is moved to later in the day in most places. So here's another thing for teachers in California, and you're using your example. The grid doesn't need their power during the day. Yeah. That's unique to California though, right? Yeah. Yeah. So here's what could happen. Imagine... If I had an, enough battery, not not as much as in my car, enough battery. So like if I work home and the power went out, like, you know, the stationary battery could deal with the basics in the house. Imagine if your car was like a little electron tanker. Now this is going to take a lot of thinking and it may never get there due to regulatory complexity. But now imagine that all day long at school, I'm building up at three cents a kilowatt because I'm incented because there's a rate structure. I'm making it right up by the way. There's a rate structure it says if I can dynamically adjust the charge rate, and sometimes I'm going to watch you take it faster because I got an oversupply of wind and solar, right? 
in exchange for that ability for the utility to have that 20% up and down control or whatever percentage they want to put the rate structure, you get flat rate, cheap, only for your EVs, separately metered, you get a really favorable rate. And you bring that to your house? I'll bring it home. And what, how does that help? They don't have base load at night. So now what you've done is you can anchor energy to your house. And so it's, it's kind of like with unnamed companies in Silicon Valley and their employees do when the food is free is they take home a lot of quote unquote leftovers that aren't really leftovers. Like they stock their fridge at home. It's the same thing to apply the energy. It's wait a minute. I could charge at work for way cheaper than I could charge. I can run my lights at home. So they load up every day and they come home. It's like you can eat most cars now, 70 kilowatt hour battery packs. You're not going to burn, burn through that at night. That story, when you're talking about, like, in many cases, EV is, feels unrelatable to the general public, in many cases, because they haven't experienced the lifestyle. I think that very basic story is the most relatable future uh, application that will get people to want to buy an EV. Yeah, that's a good one. And what's interesting is, if I have solar and battery at home, the installation of that included the necessary infrastructure to disconnect it from the grid when the grid's down. So all the safety stuff is there, so it doesn't have that barrier. So the young man's parking lot at a school, it's harder than you think to be able to separate it from the grid and still have it feed in and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, you have to put in extra stuff to stop really giving you any benefit at home. You need all that stuff anyway when you've got your solar battery, right? And so now when your car comes home, having your charger be part of that home charging ecosystem where you can use it as overnight power augmentation you still need to get i still think you need some stationary battery if you want a truly robust situation in our um but that's viable you can tanker energy from you can time shift energy from day to night and i think time shifting energy from day to night is incredibly important you know wind is a little not it's not correlated with the sun but the solar component which is the fastest growing component most generation is is being added and all the net new generation is pretty much so here are my here are my two final questions for you Number one, what happens to the consolidation of the automotive industry? Number two, what happens to the consolidation of the EV charging industry? Yeah, so um, I'll take oh, the first one's easy because we already talked about it a little bit. The consolidation of the uh, auto industry um, has to happen because the differentiating on powertrain performance, even though no one really needed it, but it was it was the emotional buying decision. That's just not there anymore, and I think. What you're seeing now is not only that, but it's the cars used to be much more of a, a fashion item like sweaters, you know, where one size didn't, one style didn't fit all. That's really consolidating. So you just don't need that many players when you remove, when you make so much of it software differentiation wise and so little of it platform over time, it's just got to shrink. And then you bring in that, the Chinese component, which never, they never, they never had a hand in the auto industry globally until recently. So that's just naturally going to over time shrink and you'll probably see it. Big car companies that have a lot of brands consolidate brands first because I don't understand why they maintain so many different sub brands that overlap having the same car with different badging. I, I, I just, I, I, I can see if there was a legacy attachment in a region to a particular brand and you bought that company and you wanted to keep it as transitional grade, but transition it because it's too big of a pain in the butt to manage. So big car companies, with a lot of brands shrink to a core set of brands and then car companies merge because they can leverage their investments. Another way it could go is it could separate. And both of these things could happen to some degree where car companies get formed 
to basically be coach builders for roller skates that they buy through supply chain, where they focus on the novel vertical application of a vehicle. So a vehicle really geared for someone that camps or a vehicle really, really geared for someone that windsurfs or does a lot of water sports or whatever. I'm making these things up just to be evocative, but you get, you get what I'm saying. It could go in that direction too. And it, it likely will be a combination, right? It likely will be a combination. The charging industry kind of really, most people don't, I, I don't think, think about it in buckets. They, they lump it, they lump us all together. Really very different. You have tech vendors and the tech vendors split into two kinds. Uh, actually three kinds, pure play hardware, that'll commoditize because they don't have enough control of their destiny, pure play software, lots of value in the software, right? But lack of ability to basically move the feature set for the subset of features that basically need a hardware component. And then lastly, you have the ones that are full stack integrated that also have the ability to have third-party hardware, kind of like the charge points of the world. I think the commoditized hardware vendors, who knows what happens there, but that always consolidates that's that's going to come down to a few players and and it'll continue to exist because the pure play software players will consolidate because it's a lot of scale to support that stuff and to keep doing all the infosec and all the regulatory stuff that you're going to have to do on the software side is your critical infrastructure and there'll be partnerships between those companies and the general purpose hardware the the commodity hardware players and then you'll have the full stack integrated players that'll, that'll like charge point that'll service customers, I think better. But, um, I think another component that'll pop up are integrators that take the component companies and front end them. So they create a virtual charge point where they create from a pure play software vendor and a pure play set of hardware vendors, something that they can present to the market as, as, as one interface to a whole bunch of independent technologies. It's very messy, but it's possible that it, that it goes in that direction. What I can tell you is that there is no market out there that I have ever seen that doesn't consolidate at scale. And the scale of this market is breathtaking. I'll leave you with this. 280 million cars just on US roads, cars and light duty trucks. We are about 1% penetrated. Look how big in revenue the companies are that are in the space with a 1% penetration of EVs. That's the TAM right now. 1% of the 280 million cars. Holy bejesus, when this thing gets the 10%, 20%, and it consolidates a little bit, because it's got to, as it consolidates, oh my God. So this is what I think all, all inv- most investors are missing. This is, this is, this is like a, the front end of a growth curve or this transformation that's just massive. And then at other regions, at other verticals like fleet, all that sort of stuff, it's going to head in a direction that's really pretty magical, I think. And and uh, guys like you that are intrepid enough to try to build a business to really help customers who, frankly, are uneducated in this, take advantage of this. Hats off to you. It's a it's a really necessary thing, and I'm and I'm glad a very competent and also very nice person like you is doing that. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the kind words, and uh, thank you for spending so much time talking about all this. This was awesome. Anytime, you know, the problem with me is if you want me to talk about something, just ask because I, I, you had me at hello on that. <laughs> I know you're always good for that. Uh, well, thanks again for the time and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Bye.